0: Hi, my name is Erfan Vafai.
1: And I'm Molly Keck. And I'm Wizzy Brown.
0: And we are with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension to the Department of Entomology. And this is Bugs by the Yard, where we hope to increase your enthusiasm about bugs in the urban landscape. And this week, we're talking about spider mites. Now, when we talk about spider mites, what does that make you two think about?
2: Webbing. Yeah, and hot weather.
0: Yeah, webbings and hot weather. So mites or or spider mites are technically not spiders. They're related to them, but they're actually in a in a completely different kind of subcategory. And what kind of distinguishes them is that they have these long hairs that come off of their body that they kind of use as like sensory organs. So they can like sense things around them with these super long hairs. And so that's where like these mites usually are in this uh, quite separate. And they also, a lot of them have sucking piercing mouth parts as well. And so uh, when we're talking about spider mites, they're called spider mites, not because they're spiders, but because they make webbing, like spiders and they're actually mites and what i find kind of funny about that is there are a lot of other silk producing insects like we have silkworms but we don't call them spider worms or we have like web worms and we don't call them spider worms i mean (laughs) i don't know i don't know why they chose to all of a sudden go with spider what about the
1: Embioptera, the web spinners you know those ones that i don't even know what you would call them spider spinners
0: (laughs) right exactly (laughs) There's so many other things we could call uh, spider things, but I guess because they're kind of in this similar uh, subcategory as spiders, are kind of a little bit more closely related than our hexapods, which are, are you know, our insects belong inside of that. that I guess it's a little bit okay, more okay to call them spider mites. But yeah, so they form webs, usually when there's really high densities. Uh, I think, Molly, was it you that said uh, hot weather?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so they're usually associated with... Really high temperatures and dry, relatively dry. And one of the possible reasons is that actually, a number of their predators do not do well in dry conditions. Like when you hit 50% humidity or lower, all of a sudden they're you know, reproduct- reproduction decreases drastically. And so a lot of their natural predators, which are these like predatory mites, which we can talk about a little bit later, require warm, but also more humid temperatures. And so I don't know about y'all, but usually where we get spider mites in our home are like in hanging baskets or on patio plants that are protected from the rain or irrigation. We, you know, water them, but we don't get really good overhead on the foliage, let's say watering. And so it stays, relatively speaking, kind of dry and protected from outside conditions.
1: I see them a lot of times when uh, people have drip irrigation, which is great, like for fungal problems, but it can really cause spider mites on those taller plants.
2: I always hear about people having spider mite issues in greenhouses though. And like during times of the year when you don't normally see them in the landscape, but I think of greenhouses as always being really humid. So, and, and I've heard add a couple fans and get airflow to occur so that you can help with the spider mites. But if they like it hot and dry, then why do they like greenhouses or have I only heard of a couple odd cases?
0: I think at least in my experience, the growers that I've worked with usually have their spider mites somewhat in check. Now they do have their odd years that they are not. I would argue the reason is that when they, they start getting a really thick canopy within the greenhouse, spray coverage is very difficult. I mean, they'll try and go in and do some insecticide sprays and they can't. And within a greenhouse, it's a relative monoculture. This is very different landscape. So you might not have your predatory populations there. Maybe you've already done some sprays and taken out your predators. And so you've already created some conditions that in some ways are optimal for your pest spider mites. And now actually controlling them is very difficult. Another thing too is in greenhouses, uh, usually in, at least in production settings you know there's a lot of fertilizer applied to really you know try and get your your growth quicker and a lot of these sucking insect pests including spider mites when given excess nitrogen to the plants actually do the spider mites do really well mm-hmm. to the point that it's even been demonstrated that, Like the the effectiveness of insecticides actually decreases when you have really high fertilizer rates. And in some cases, you know, you can even reduce your fertilizer rate by, say, 50%, still get similar plant growth, at least unnoticeably different, and drastically reduce your spider mite populations. So I wonder if it's a mix of some of those factors as to why uh, maybe they become more prevalent in the greenhouse.
2: I bet you... Um, they don't have How, the predators. What are, you, in what are
0: you betting me? What are you betting me here?
2: Mm, like a penny.
0: Maybe. Okay. Oh, a penny. Oh, wow. Done. It's on. <laughs> I'm going to spend 50, 50 hours scouting, <laughs> <laughs> looking for those predatory mites <laughs> in association yeah. with infestations for that one. That penny yeah, is going to be well penny. worth it. <laughs> no,
2: because where I were the two times I've seen it is in like a botanical garden greenhouse where master gardeners were manning it and they were growing, these plants in order to do plant sales. And then another was a smaller master gardener greenhouse. It did seem to be just on specific plants. You could see that like stippling effect on the top of the leaves and they definitely had an issue, but they, it was not a grower situation. Like they didn't get a big canopy and they had a hodgepodge of plants in there. So I bet you, they just brought something in from outside and maybe it's the nitrogen thing too. Still a combination of all those things, I think.
0: Yeah. It may very well be a combination. Now, And you're kind of getting into it, kind of what are the other symptoms of having spider mites? You know, we already mentioned the webbing and that usually occurs at high densities and they'll start putting their eggs on those webs that are really hard to see with the naked eye. usually helps to have some kind of magnification. I think, you know, a 10 times magnification lens, you can start to make them out. Now you also mentioned some stippling. Mm -hmm. What does that typically kind of look like? Are they in tight clusters or do you see kind of evenly distributed or how have you kind of noticed it?
2: not in tight clusters and not evenly distributed in as far as it's like symmetrical, right? It's just, it's random, but I have seen it all throughout the leaf on the top side. If you don't know what stippling effective, it's like a blanched blotches. Yeah, um, It looks blotchy. Mm-hmm. Like they leached the color out of those particular blotchy areas. Tell me if I'm right. I heard that the reason why they do that is they actually inject their mouth parts into a plant cell, an individual plant cell, and then it explodes. And that's why you get this stippled effect.
0: As I understand. So it's the mesophyll cells are collapsing. So I don't know if it's exploding or if it's because they kind of suck them to the point where they kind of collapse on themselves. I'm not exactly sure, but yeah, they are the structural integrity of those cells have been broken.
1: It's like a, a Pre sun, when you get to the end of it, right? It just yeah. sucks
0: all in. Yeah, there you go. So it's, and that as a result, then you don't get that green color being reflected anymore. Now it's a usually more of a yellowish white color. And like the name implies, stippling is kind of these little dots that are kind of all over the leaf. And there are some other insects that will cause stippling type damage. So thrips can cause damage that looks like that. they call it sometimes more like leaf silvering, but it's, I think to me, looks very similar. Even sometimes certain types of thrips on certain types, uh, sorry, thrips, (laughs) I mentioned even thrips too, (laughs) even uh, aphids (laughs) as well. And other sucking insects can cause that type of stippling damage. So that's why it's always really important to then look on the underside of the leaves, use a hand lens or a head lens if you're super duper cool Mm -hmm. and see if you can actually find what the culprit is.
2: Lace bugs.
0: Yeah. Lace bugs. And that was something that we were considering combining with this one. Yeah. So lace bugs, also sucking insect pests. I usually see them on my azaleas Mm -hmm. every single year.
2: Lantana, Lantanas yeah. as
0: well. Okay. Wow. So yeah, azalea lace bugs. If you look on the underside of those leaves uh, with them, they will actually leave this, uh, they look like black oil slicks, right? It's like their frass, their poop. It's like this oily black looking uh, drops on there that can be confused for immatures or the insects themselves, but it's just their frass. And the immatures are usually a little bit spiky looking, almost look a little scary. And the adults are Beautiful, because the name implies lace bugs. Their wings are kind of like lacy, uh, has this like lace pattern on it. So they look really, uh, really neat. So they are something to put on display.
2: The adults are rectangular.
0: Yeah. I mean, I guess they are kind of rectangular.
2: And flat, not to be confused with lace wings, which are like tense and good.
0: Yeah. And and usually green or brown in color. And their immatures are major predators of a lot of soft-bodied insects.
1: I want to jump in and say, I always get this question or not question, but they, they question me, I guess.
0: Who's interrogating you, Missy? Who's, <laughs> Everyone. who's questioning you? How dare they?
1: I know. Austin it's residents. like, who is the expert here? Come on. <laughs> so when we have hot, dry times of the year at weird times, because people expect July and August to be hot and dry in Texas, but sometimes when we're in drought years, It could be February, March, and we're in like crazy hot times. And I have seen spider mites at that time and people bring the stuff into me. And I tell them they have spider mites and they look at me like I'm crazy. Spider mites don't care what month it is. They're going by environmental conditions. So if it's hot, dry times, then that can be conducive for those spider mites to really flourish. So they, they don't have calendars.
0: -hmm. Yeah, very interesting fact. Actually, Spider-Mites lost their access to Outlook 365 back in 2010.
1: (laughs) Very unfortunate.
0: Have since not (laughs) been able. I mean, mind you, even with Outlook 365, they couldn't really track things well because their calendars just weren't syncing up. But now especially. Mm -hmm. So yeah, they don't they don't care about calendar date. You can get them kind of anytime. And so that's that's an important point to bring up because people might ask things like, when can I expect them or when should I spray for them? And it's really like, you got to monitor, you got to scout and look at your plants and um, you know they don't always come out at the same time. And there are certain plants or cultivars. So there was, for example, a rose grower nearby that noticed that there was a certain cultivar of rose that always got spider mites the earliest and in highest populations than all of his other roses. And, you know, I always said there's one of two things one can do is one, either stop growing those roses or two, you're using that as an indicator cultivar. So you can essentially put a few of those around on your farm and you're focusing your monitoring attention on those roses as an early indication of when to start looking out for spider mites on the rest of your crop and when to intervene if necessary. So
1: that rose bush would essentially be a sacrificial lamb.
0: Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Except it wouldn't be a lamb. I mean, that's kind of, I guess kind of A sacrificial rose. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) The spider mite gods. Exactly. Yeah. And so when we talk about mites, there's a lot of different types of uh, mites. So things like dust mites, chiggers, scabies, there are like different types of parasites. These are all types of mites. When we talk about spider mites, usually we're talking about two spotted spider mites, which are actually apparently a complex of several species. So it was originally thought to be just one species, but actually potentially several species within that particular group itself. But then there are some others, for example, broad mites that also can be considered pests on ornamentals or about half the size of two spotted spider mites, but otherwise are very similar in the type of damage they cause. But we also have predatory mites, and some of which are actually available commercially. Now, I wouldn't really recommend a homeowner to purchase and release predatory mites because usually the cost doesn't really justify it. Uh, it's usually something done in protected culture like in greenhouses uh, growers may use or even on uh, field-grown strawberries in California, for example. But there's this one predatory mite, for example, known as Phytoseius persimilis, which it's feeds almost exclusively on the two-spotted spider mite. And again, prefers like that more humid and hotter environment. You know, I think it feeds on something like five uh, five adult spider mites every single day and can feed on several eggs as well. So when you have a high enough population, they can actually help drastically reduce um, some of those two-spotted spider mite populations. Have either of you ever had experience either releasing or witnessing or seeing kind of predatory mites in, in the landscape or in production?
2: No, but now I want to. I I would totally want to. That would be cool.
0: So it's kind of neat. I mean, there's a few different um, distribution methods. It's still I still find it kind of mind-boggling. Thinking of how these companies mass produce these things because you buy them in bottles of like 50,000 mites or 100,000 mites. Probably. Yeah. And then uh, they usually come in some kind of a, uh, there's different types, but one comes in a carrier material. It's basically think of like wood chips. And you have to make sure you mix it kind of well before distributing, but you can sprinkle these wood chips or shoot it out of a fan. out onto your crops. Oh, that
1: would be awesome. I have a a vision of like those t-shirt guns that they use at like sporting. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yeah. (laughs) So funny story because some growers that are trying to spread this stuff across their greenhouse started using pretty powerful fans. Well it turns out there was some research done on how does that wind speed or or the strength of the fan impact the survival of these mites. And a lot of these fans were actually blowing out of speed that would essentially tear up those mites. Yeah. And so there was a grower that, you know, she, she was a, uh, a bit of an artist and she had drawn up a comic of this like spider mite on crutches with like an eye patch and like two legs ripped off in the background is the silhouette of someone like blow leaf blowing, you know, spider mites out of a leaf blower. <laughs> it's just, I thought it was such an awesome visual. But yeah, there's also these things they called like little breeding sachets. You can also get these little blister packs, essentially, that have the predatory mite and this other feeder mite that isn't considered a major agricultural or, or horticultural pest. And so they basically slowly come out of that pack onto the crop. So it's kind of neat how they've kind of produced some of those and how they're distributed.
1: Okay. I have a question about yeah. the ones that get blown or
0: sure. whatever.
1: Are they transporting on like the wind currents or are they transporting like, you know how spiders throw up the silk and they balloon? Do the spider mites have that capability?
0: I'm not certain, but to my knowledge, spider mites do not balloon like that. I mean, for the listeners that there are some spiders that produce almost like a little parachute with their webbing to catch wind currents and kind of blow around. And to my knowledge, predatory mites, or at least Phytosius prosimilus does not do that what they're doing is this material, it's like the wood chips they're basically holding on to those for dear life and those are getting blown across yeah exactly wow. <laughs> don't let go Is this your first time? (laughs) Yeah. You got the vision of
1: Titanic and they slowly fall off that piece of wood. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Only one mite per plank. (laughs) Now, if you're a homeowner uh, or even a master gardener and, you know, releasing these predatory mites is not necessarily economic, but you want to look at not hurting any naturally occurring predatory mites. And this is, I think, where where we come to insecticide use. So there was some very interesting, very interesting work. So one one example is um, back in Central Park in New York City, USA. There's this publication about what occurred in. Uh, the publications in 2011, I can't remember if this occurred in 2011 or a little bit earlier, there was some applications, some insecticidal applications applied to some trees. And it wasn't for spider mites, it was for something else. Shortly thereafter, the trees were completely, essentially defoliated. They were defoliated by two spotted spider mites. Essentially, what they found was, there's two different things that have uh, been found since then. One is that these insecticides they can kind of biomagnify that the two spotted spider mites themselves are not killed by a lethal dose of that insecticide, but their predators feeding on a bunch of two spotted spider mites are getting a lethal dose. And so it kills all of a sudden, all of their predatory mites. Some other work more recently has also found that some of these insecticides, so in this class known as neonicotinoids, that includes like imidacloprid, which is usually what's used in, in the consumer market can actually decrease plant defenses. It's been found in cotton, corn, and in tomato was three that's been shown experimentally and presumably there's a lot more that when applied, not only did they get more two spotted spotted mites, but they actually looked at the defense, the natural defensive compounds of most plants and they were down regulated, which is just really interesting and has all kinds of implications in what you choose to use and when to use it, you know, whether that insecticide is actually necessary, or if you can just spray off your plant periodically to increase that humidity and disturbance of that plant so that those spider mites don't quite uh, get a good grasp on it.
2: I have heard that before about the the pesticides oftentimes will knock down your predatory mite population to the point that the Mm -hmm. spider mites explode. But why is that? Do you think, do you think the spider mites have just been over such a long period of time exposed to those pesticides that they have a little bit of resistance or the predatory mites more wimpy when they encounter that pesticide or what is it, are they on the plant in a different spot? Like what's the mechanism for
0: that? There might be several different mechanisms. I did read in one paper that two spotted spider mites, they can be selection for insecticide resistance within 20 generations, which when it's really hot, 20 generations can happen within a year. I mean, so it can happen relatively quickly. So I think that's one mechanism. Another mechanism is they've found a lot of endosymbionts. So that's a fancy word for bacteria that live in the gut. Of these other insects and have a mutually beneficial relationship with that insect, or in this case, a mite. And I think we spoke about them a little bit when we spoke about white flies, but two spotted spider mites have also been shown to have them. Some of these endosymbionts can sometimes confer, either give higher reproduction, quicker reproduction, or they might also give a resistance to certain insecticides. And so you can all of a sudden have insecticide resistance move a lot quicker because instead of selecting for traits over generations and generations, these endosymbionts, which reproduce much quicker, can adapt much quicker, and then they can be transferred horizontally, we call this. So it's like between two individuals that are already alive through the plant. So one feeds on it and infects the plant with this endosymbiont, the other one feeds on it and picks it up, and now it has it as well. Whereas vertical is when you give birth to babies, and now they also have those endosymbionts. So it's been shown that a number of these endosymbionts can transfer both horizontally and vertically. And there are some that can give, confer insecticide resistance. And then lastly, I'd say, you know, some of these insecticides, depending on the predator, they act more effectively against some classes of insects versus others. So if we're talking lady beetles, for example, as the predator, people commonly call them ladybugs. There are um, several classes that, you know, for example, carbaryl or carbaryl like seven that will work very well against lady beetles, but not quite as effectively against two spotted spider mites. So that's one major predator that you're potentially knocking out, and it might also just be the numbers. You almost always have less predators than you have prey. And so if your insecticide knocks out 99% of a population and you have 10 predators and a thousand two spotted spider mites, you're going to end up with a lot more two spotted spider mites surviving and reproducing and outpacing those predators much quicker. So I suspect those are all some of the pieces that kind of fall together as to why insecticides can sometimes promote a, a pest population. Okay. Well, that's all I had about spider mites. I hope uh, there was some new information in there for you in terms of recognizing some of their damage, some closely related species, and how to kind of manage them or consider some management strategies or, or things that could go wrong. You know, before we kind of conclude, I guess I want to say a final kind of goodbye because this is actually my last week with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension. It has been by far, just uh, I've been incredibly grateful for the opportunities I've had and for all my time with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension for the last seven and a half years. But certain opportunities and circumstances uh, have led to me taking another opportunity starting after this week. So this is my last time on this particular podcast. So I want to thank all the listeners for tuning in, but I know that you know both Wizzy and Molly, y'all are going to do a great job at carrying forward with this. And I want to thank you so much for co-hosting this with me.
2: Thank you, Erfan.
1: It has been wonderful doing this with you and working with you over the past few years.
2: It's just, you're going to be missed. Definitely. And I think anyone who has listened to any of these podcasts will realize that we are losing a gigantic brain and a very good entomologist from Extension.
0: Well, thank you so much. That's that's too kind. And uh, once again, so for the last time, thank you again for joining Bugs by the Yard. My name is Erfan Vafai.
1: I'm Molly Keck. And I'm Wizzy
0: Brown. We'll see y'all again. Well, y'all will see Wizzy and Molly again in a fortnight. All right.
1: So that ends the recording.